All right. Good morning, church. That was pitiful. Good morning, church. Yes, yes. Uh, school is out this week. Uh, praise the Lord for you teachers. I don't know how you've endured. You deserve uh, a summer off. So go ahead and take that summer off. Uh, so, so glad for you teachers. Uh, thank you so much. If, if you're joining us online, we're so grateful that you've carved out a little bit of time on a Sunday to spend with us. Thank you. We hope that you are blessed. We pray for you. If you want to take a moment and uh, just let us know your name online, uh, say, hi, my name is. We'd love to greet you. We'd love to know a little bit even more about you and uh, how we can be praying for you. We gather here in this room, but there is a huge contingency uh, that joins us, and we just want you to know your family. We have a potluck uh, right after this service. Uh, if you were late for announcements, uh, you're all invited. Even if you didn't bring someone, there will be plenty of time to run out and grab something, and we just want you you to know if you're online, whether you're in Canada or another state or here locally in Colorado, there's a seat waiting for you uh, for our next potluck. We love you. We appreciate you. And we're glad that you're joining us. I want you to turn into your tables just for a moment. Make sure everyone knows your name. Uh, if you see maybe a sparse table, you can join. So make sure everyone knows your name. And then I want you to decide if you were to vote someone off the island, who would that be at your table? So go ahead and do that right now. <laughs> Choose wisely. You don't want to regret that decision. All right, how many of you got voted off? Stand if they voted you off. These are the losers. We say that in Christ-like love. These are, these are those who have been booted off. Dude, really, Eric? Holy moly, did they even blink? Before I finish the question, they're like, Eric, he's gone. Oh my gosh, all right. So we know, uh, we know what's in the room. Uh, there is deceitfulness here uh, and cunning and, and agendas. Hey, we're super glad you're here. Uh, would you pray with me? Let's jump in as, as we continue our study. Lord, we, we desire nothing short than to hear from you. That's why we gather. That's why we do church. That's why we worship. That's why we pray. Uh, we just so desire to hear from your voice, from your heart, from your mind, from your logic, from your character. We desire that so badly because we know in looking at the scriptures that just a brief interaction with you changes everything. Just a touch of your cloak changes everything. Just a whisper of our name changes everything. A staff thrown on the ground changes everything. So please do that this morning. As we continue our study, we are expecting to hear directly from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in this uh, study on the book of Titus. Uh, we have creatively titled it, 
the epistle to Titus, uh, just so that you wouldn't forget what we're doing. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open those up. Do me a favor, if you didn't bring your Bibles, there should be several in chairs around you. So if your chair underneath it doesn't have a Bible, uh, there are several around there. Go steal someone else's at a, at a table. But I would love for you to open the scriptures. This is one of the great reasons why we have tables in here. We want you to have the Bibles open. We want you to bring your notebooks. If there's a notebook at your table, uh, don't take someone else's, but if there's a notebook at your table uh, and you don't have one to take notes and study, uh, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and, and take that with you. Um, but I would love for you to open up to the book of Titus. If you're new to the scriptures, new to church, uh, new to Christianity, we're so glad that you're investigating or jumped on this journey. Uh, the book of Titus is towards the end of the Bible in what's called the New Testament. There's a bunch of tea books all together, and it is one of the, it is the last uh, tea book. What we're talking about this morning, as, as we've done so, we've been building and building and building uh, essentially to hope. And uh, I can think of very few other times in our modern history when we've needed more hope than we do today. And I'm going to uh, be able to explain uh, some hope that is found deep within the scriptures that's going to also explain the new covenant, the new way of things that are happening. I have to admit to you, it's gonna be a little heady at times. I'm gonna ask you to hang with me. We're gonna be flying around the scriptures, but cr think critically, take notes, and dive into this because I think it's gonna be a great journey. We begin uh, with a reading out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This was written in 16. 46, when they got together, a confession is exactly that. They just get together. It'd be like us getting a, a, a team together, and we say, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That would be a confession of faith. And, and so they wrote this Westminster Confession of Faith in regards to uh, our salvation. And listen to what it says. Uh, this is in uh, point 9.3. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. I want you to dwell on this for just a moment. We're going to unpack this as we move forward, but this makes it very, very clear. You and I can't bring anything to the table, right? Uh, so if you close a house, uh, you bring something to the table. If you want to buy a house, you bring something to the table. If you're going to close a deal, you bring something to the table. This makes it very clear. We bring nothing uh, to the table, and we want to proclaim that from the rooftops. Why is this confession important? What difference does this make in your life and in mine? It's important because if we look back at Paul's writing, both in Titus and to other areas of the Scripture, we read about accepting this bondage of the will. And it's actually this idea of accepting our bondage of the will pre-Jesus in our life is essentially a prerequisite, if you would, for understanding calling and justification. So we're going to dig into calling and justification and then how that delivers us into salvation. You see, the Cretans, the, the people that Titus has been entrusted to, they're not great people. They're, they're in moral decay. There's lots of corruption. There's finger pointing. There's cheating. There's lying. They're, they're lazy. They're gluttons. All of this is going on. And Paul has instructed Titus 
to establish elders to teach sound doctrine. And, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what is sound doctrine, that idea of the truths of the Holy Scriptures, to teach these sound doctrines that accord with sound living. In other words, these sound teachings ought to line up in line with sound living. And we know, and Alicia led us in prayer this morning, we realize that's not always easily obtainable. It's sometimes as if we're grasping, trying to find out what is that sound living? What is that sound doctrine? This is important because uh, it is important to convey that Jesus Christ, this was important in Titus in Paul's days, that Jesus Christ, not Caesar, is God and our Lord and Savior. And thus, Jesus alone defines sound teaching and truth and doctrine and sound living. Jesus defines that. Now, nothing's changed. We look differently, we act differently, we have different jobs, we, we have different homes than they had in, in the first century church, but nothing has changed because culture wants to define truth. Culture wants to define what is good, what is evil. Culture wants to take charge. And it was the same thing back then through a man named Caesar and other governing authorities. And Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that happens in Jesus Christ. And on the heels of these teachings, Paul taught that we need to be saved and trained by righteousness discovered in grace, discovered in his mercy. You say, well, I, I, I don't quite understand grace and mercy. I'll help you. You're here. God hasn't struck you down. He hasn't turned his back on you. He hasn't wiped you from the face of this planet. And guess what? You deserve all of that. We all, every single one of us in this room, the Bible says there's not one, not even one that is good. So that's grace and mercy. And grace radically transforms those who receive it and then understand it. That's what grace does. And our faith ancestors have repeated over and over and over and over that the reflection on the doctrine of God motivates good works. That to motivate on the doctrine of God, to dwell on that truth, motivates good works. Well, what are good works? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. They come out, that we live those out, and those are given to us, and then they're given life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we live out this good life, these good works. Not based on us deciding we read a really good book and we're just gonna all be better people tomorrow. That's, that's not where we're going. And this is really great news because it doesn't fully depend on you. It's not on your shoulders. It's, it's not for you to buck up tomorrow and make some changes, to read a good self-help book and, and listen to a really good podcast and, and to just make some radical changes in your life. This is not a New Year's resolution. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we might even nod our heads in agreement with Paul. And, and for what I just said, we might go, yeah, that, that sounds absolutely true. And yet there are different ideas in mind on how we live that out what we do with that truth. So there's some very practical
chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's the word for us today. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. There's your word for today. I'm just kidding, but like that's a, not an easy one. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, but must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. And not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of what? His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may have a seat. Notice it doesn't say anything about you. It doesn't say anything about your good deeds. It doesn't say anything about your Bible study. It doesn't say anything about your mission trip. It doesn't say anything about uh, your time in prayer. It doesn't say anything about helping uh, someone across the street or getting a cat out of a tree. It has nothing to do with you, quite frankly. It has nothing to do with me. And the, and the quicker we can grab hold of that, the faster that we can realize that truth, we become free. It changes how we perceive the world around us. Paul jumps right into the fruits of salvation, and, and he's already taught on some of these things. He, he reminds us relationship with the government. That is, we are supposed to be submissive. We read about this in Romans chapter 13 and, and 1 Peter chapter 2. We are supposed to be submissive at every chance we can. Let me meddle for a moment. I'm going to repeat that. We are supposed to be submissive at every single point that we can to government. That means we don't look for a fight. We look to where we can be submissive. We don't look to where we can throw something malicious on social media. We look to where we can be submissive. We don't look to where we can have an argument with someone and try and convince them to vote a different way. We look to where we can be submissive. Am I clear? You don't have to like it. I don't like it, but our job as followers of Jesus Christ is to look to be submissive to those who are in government unless they call us to things outside of what Scripture calls us to. We got to wrestle with that. At every chance, we're called to be obedient and ready for every good work, and that begins with the right attitude and the right mindset. That's what we're called to do. He also talks about relationship. If, if you didn't like government, uh, then he says, uh, also, live that way for everyone, as if government weren't hard enough. That means your uncle that you really detest on Thanksgiving, you're supposed to be kind and loving to. 
That means your weird family member that just rubs you the wrong way every single time you're with them. Am I the only one? You guys have perfect families? Awesome, you saints. That means we're not to be slandering, but inclined towards peace, winsome, not contentious, gentle and meek. This is what we're called to do. Now the Bible says if you've thought it, you've said it. How's that for some truth? This year has been really hard with COVID. And as we continue to move forward, the thing that you have to be careful is what is the condition of your heart? Are you living this peaceful, loving, gentle, uh, meek way towards the world around you? Or do you have judgment in your heart? If you have judgment in your heart, you need to go spend some time with the Lord. You gotta confess that stuff. You gotta root that junk out. And don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next week. You gotta go do some surgery today because it's not good for you and that's not what we're called to do. Perfectly showing humility. Paul wants Titus to remind the church of these particular truths because Paul and Titus were just as depraved as they were. It's not like they had their act together and they were living out on the island and had their feet up in a hammock sipping a Mai Tai. That they were in prison, they were beaten, they were robbed, they were, they were ridiculed. They understand what it's like, and yet they were called to live differently. Friends, you and I, if, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, we are called to live differently than this world. And it's hard. It's exhausting. It regularly requires you to turn the other cheek. It requires you to take the shirt off your back and hand it over. It requires you to remain silent, as our Lord did, approaching the shears. That's the call that we live in. And the truth had to be established and proclaimed. Otherwise, it was at risk of being suppressed and changed. Sound familiar? It's exactly what's going on in our world today. The truth is being suppressed because it just doesn't feel right. It's being changed so that it can match what's up to date in our culture. Now, is there a time to make adjustments? Let's be abundantly clear. Yes, there are times to make adjustments, but not to the scriptures. Our behavior how we treat others, how we speak, what words we choose, the things that we do. Absolutely, we have to change, we have to evolve, we have to continue to get in healthy. We do not change the word of God, period. And this is what was at risk of changing the truth. C.S. Lewis is the magician's nephew. Any Narnia fans in this room? Awesome, very, very good. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the magician's nephew, the lion sings Narnia into existence, but Uncle Andrew suppresses the truth. Here's how it is described in the book. When the lion had first begun singing, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked that song very much. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he as he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing. And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, 
the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider, not my words, C.S. Lewis, than you really are, is that you often succeed. And with all due respect to culture, this is what continues to happen before our very eyes. This is happening. And not just in culture, it's us. It's us in the church. It's us Christ followers. You would think in a, in a day that we find ourselves today that, that the church would rally, that it would strengthen, that it would be united, and yet we see so much even division within the church. Masks, no masks. Vaccination, no vaccination. Distance, no distance. Trump, Biden, border wall, no border wall. And instead of coming together and going, well, what does Scripture say, and how do we hold on to Jesus? We go, well, I'm going to side over here because I like what I hear from the news. No disrespect, but I could care less what you like. I could care less what news station you like or what news show you like or, or what newspaper or blog you read. I could care less. I care about this book. I care about if this is your guiding force. You can't trust news. Do you not understand that? All sides. You cannot trust news. The Bible tells us we can't trust news. We can trust the King of kings and Lord of lords, the author of this book. That's who we can trust. That's who we can build our life on. That's our foundation. And this is, uh, this is this, this suppression and this non-understanding uh, of where new life is found. This is everyone who remains as they once were. Our passage states it in verses 1 through 3. We need to understand it. It says, foolish and disobedient. That means acting stupid. Again, I'm going C.S. Lewis. If he can say it, we can say it. Uh, it means acting stupid specifically towards authority. Do you know who gets affected when you get worked up on government authority? You. Do you think any authority, any government authority gets worked up because you're worked up? They don't even know who you are. But it affects you. It affects your day. It affects your morning. It affects your relationships. It doesn't affect anyone in government. It affects you. You're miserable. You're upset, you're frustrated, and it affects you. It says misled and enslaved. That means being deceived and caught up in our cultural context. It means compromising various lusts and pleasures, and they're bountiful today. So instead of drawing a line and fighting, we give in and we enjoy. It says malice and envy. That's our, our, our daily attitude and posture. What do we wake up? Do, do we wake up to, to, to put on the armor of God or do we wake up and grab our phone? This is not a guilt trip sermon in any way. This is hope. It's going to get hopeful. But if, if it hurts, wrestle with that. 
It says hated and hating one another. It doesn't say misliking. It doesn't say like, I really don't like to sit at the potluck with that guy, but he, here he comes. That's not what it's talking about. We hated one another. This means side conversation of, of all sorts, gossip, letting our words just come out of our mouth or off our fingertips as we type. This is the risk. This was the risk in Crete. This is the risk in Boulder. And you and I, together, we have to confront that. We have to examine our heart, as the scriptures say, reveal any wicked way in me. You want a healthy prayer? Pray it cautiously. But if you want a, a, a powerful prayer, get in the habit of saying, Lord, reveal any wicked way in me. He will. It's like when you say, Lord, teach me patience. I don't want to get anywhere near you because he will teach you some patience. And friends, we only overcome those things, listen, not by our own strength, not by reading more, not by praying more, not by going to church more, although we'd love to see you if you're at home. That, that's not how we root those things out. It involves a true sense of sin as well as a full comprehension of the mercy of God. That's how we begin to change. As in chapter 2, Paul follows the imperative with the indicative. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. 4 through 7 amounts to one lengthy sentence in the Greek. The phrase, if you're underlining or taking notes or highlighting, highlight this or circle or put an arrow, the phrase, he saved us. He saved us is the main verb of this super long sentence. God saves us out of verse 3. So look at verse 3. He saves us out of verse 3 by his goodness, his loving kindness and mercy revealed most clearly in the appearance of the King and Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. That's how he saves us. Uh, again, realize he doesn't save us with your help. It's, it, you might have the right ambition, but if you go before God and go, man, you got a lot going on. There's the Palestinians and the Israelis. You got COVID. How about I help? God's response is, thank you, not needed. I got this. My love is beyond your ability to wrap your mind around. I got this. And when we realize that, it changes us. Why is this important? Because salvation is not of works we have done. It never is, it never was, it never will be based on anything we've done. If you look at verses 1 through 2, it, that didn't bring about salvation. There's some good stuff there. But that didn't bring about the salvation. They were the response, keep with me, they were the response of the act of God. It came afterwards. It came out of a conclusion. This happened so that I will live this way, not the other way around. And it happened with the Father, verse 8, with the Son, verse 6, and the Holy Spirit, verse 5. So you go, well, how am I supposed to do good works? You cling with everything in your life to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit every minute of every day. That's what you do. 
You don't think better. You don't only watch G-rated movies. As Alex said a few weeks ago, you don't just listen to Caleb 24-7. All of that may help. That might be really good stuff. What do you do? You cling. And the idea of cling is you're going to drown if you don't. You cling to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every minute of every day, as if your life depends on it. Why? Because it does. It does. And this is really good news. Salvation is incredible. It's our hope. Scripture describes it as a, as a bath of a new birth. A, a born-again washing. Baptism is the sign and the seal of a spiritual cleansing. God's work of regeneration precedes our act of faith. Are you with me? His work, his prompting, his growth in you precedes you doing something good. Not the other way around. God acts first. And because of his act, because of his strength, because of his power, because of his wisdom, he imparts that unto us and then we get to act. Why is that important? Because that's why we shouldn't ever take credit for anything good we do. We should always reflect it back to God. We should just walk around with a mirror. Every time we do something good, boom, that's a reflection on God. You help someone out, boom, it's a reflection on God. Buy someone groceries, boom, it's a reflection on God. It's all about Him. You say, well, that feels like we're just beating ourselves down and there's nothing good in us. That's not what we're saying. There's something great in you because of Jesus. Short of Jesus, there's nothing good about you. The only thing good about you is that God created you. But again, where's the root? God. But sin destroyed that. And, and that's why there's that separation. So there can't be good. Even though you are a creation of God, you can't be good without Jesus standing in front of you. It's like walking up to the mafia boss. This is for the Montaneries. You, you, know, you can't walk up to the mafia boss if someone doesn't stand in front of you. Any Godfather fans in here? I probably shouldn't even talk about Godfather on Sunday, but nevertheless, here we are. I'll just leave that. It's all dependent on the renewal of the Holy Spirit. All of it. By the Spirit's work, we are made new, and thus we worship in gratitude. That's why Alex causes us to hold out our hands so that we receive. What do you need to receive? Everything. <laughs> Everything. You need a paycheck. That doesn't come from you. That comes from God. If you want to test that, then tell God, my paycheck comes from me. Just see what happens. Your happiness, your joy, your, your family unity, your health, all of that comes from God. That's why we hold out our hands in worship. That's why we stand in an attitude of submission before God. Why? Because we need it. We need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. The Holy Spirit begins the work of transformation, and that follows regeneration. And Paul is here, Paul is reflecting on Pentecost. Today is Pentecost Sunday, which is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verse 28. That when, when Pentecost happened, that was a fulfillment of the prophecy. It is incredible the way the Bible just works together. 
You can read that later, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. This is Paul. He's inspired and led by the Holy Spirit, but guess what? He's just a man. He's just a human, just like you and I. And it's the consideration of this new covenant of salvation, this new way to obtain, not the Old Testament ways, not, not the sacrifices, not the works-based, but this new idea, this new idea of a covenant of salvation where the pouring out of God's wrath, we see this in the book of Ezekiel, underwent a dramatic reversal being replaced by the pouring out of God's Spirit. And this leads Paul, this idea, this remembering of Ezekiel, this leads Paul to the articulation of the doctrine of justification by grace. Check this out. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, I'll give you a little bit of time. Uh, it's, man, it's darn near close to halfway in the Bible. Um, it's still in the Old Testament. But Ezekiel chapter 36, as you turn there, it's also going to be on the screen for those of you who are joining us on home. Uh, it's going to be on your television screens uh, as well. We begin with verse 18. Here's what verse 18 says. They, regarding the people, they polluted the land with murder and the worship of idols. So I, God, poured out my fury on them. I scattered them to many lands to what? Punish them for the evil way that they had lived. That is, in essence, our destiny without Jesus Christ. That heart, that perspective, that's how we are viewed without Jesus standing in front of us. But Paul, knowing the scriptures very, very well, he realizes it gets better because there's hope that's coming in the person of Jesus. Yes, even found in the book of Ezekiel. Turn with me to verse 25 and notice the stark contrast. Then after someone comes, this someone named Jesus, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you what? a new heart. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And then it gets better. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Friends, the world doesn't have that hope. They are stuck on verse 18. Those that, that try and live this life without Jesus Christ are, are stuck on verse 18. But just as Paul is encouraging this new way of life, this new hope in justification and salvation, this newness comes because Ezekiel says, this is how you are, but there's coming a day where there's going to be a message from the Lord. Jesus is coming, and then God is going to sprinkle cleanliness on everybody. He's going to replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that's patient and peaceful and kind and loving. Some of you still remember life without Jesus. I sure do. I remember my heart. I remember very vividly my heart without God. And it's not pretty. 
it's, ex- it's exactly this. Stony, stubborn heart. And do you see the reversal? Do you see what happens when Jesus comes? Do you see what happens when Jesus comes and you say, yes, Lord? Do you see what happens when you share Christ with someone and and they say, yes, Lord? This new hope of God's justification, it's awesome. Pastor and theologian James Buchanan of the Church of Scotland, I'm Scottish, so I love this, uh, the Church of Scotland, he wrote this truth in the mid-1800s. Here's what he says. Justification is a legal or forensic term and is used in Scripture to denote the acceptance of anyone as righteous in the sight of God. What's that mean? It means you're not judge. You can't decide you're right. You can't stand up and say, I'm good to go. You don't have that ability. You don't have that authority. I, as a former police officer, I've spent more hours than I care to count in a courtroom. And I've seen countless accused crooks Uh, stand before a judge on their own without a defense attorney and try and say, I'm right. That doesn't go very far. The judge doesn't really care what you have to say. You can't define or, or, or proclaim yourself as good, and it's the same way in justification. This means that I have no power, I have no ability, I have no right to add to my salvation, to to obtain our righteousness, to seek out grace. I don't have that without God's prompting. It's only through the inherent justification that dwells on the character of God, stay with me, you dwell on the character of God, and then that character of God, who is good, that can do good works, is then transferred onto us. And that's how we find a glimmer of hope, is we ask God. That's why, that's why we pray and say, God, give me your patience. Give me your peace. Give me your understanding. I don't want my peace. I don't want my understanding. I don't want my gentleness, because at best, that's going to last a minute. And then I'm going to run out. I want to go to the source that's endless. We sing that song, your love is endless. So is his peace. So is his understanding. So is his patience. So is his ability to love the unlovely. That's endless. I get to E real fast. And we find that hope. It's him. It's always been him. It's never been us. It never will be. And that powerful theological truth and our understanding and acceptance of it is found in the Holy Scriptures. It's not found watching the news. It's not found scrolling social media. It's not found interviewing neighbors and and kind of finding out what everyone else believes. It's found in what the Scriptures have to say. And then this truth takes root. The Bible says that there will be fruit which provides, verse 8, the proof of salvation. That's what verse 8. These things, if you're, again, underlining and highlighting, grab these things in your scripture and highlight that, either electronically or by paper. These things probably refers to the entire letter, but Paul wants Titus to insist on everything he has said. 
Don't leave anything out. Make sure you, you march to the beat that I've laid out. He wants him to confirm with confidence the calling believers have to concentrate, to dwell on, to devotion to good works. That this becomes what we dwell on day in and day out. Let's admit it, that's been hard to do this year. It's been hard to just dwell on the truth of the scriptures day in and day out, minute after minute. Why? Because we've had a pandemic. We've had political crisis. We've had racial crisis. We've had all kinds of things that take our attention and focus it out there and not on the word. And the enemy knows exactly what he's doing. And he loves it. He loves it. It has worked perfectly. But no more. We begin to change things. And those who believe in this passage in verse 8, those who believe and continue to believe, they're in the perfect tense. That means the good works that we perform after justification are not done apart from faith and trust. In other words, here's how it works. We are justified and we do the good works right next to faith and trust. Not apart. We don't say, well, I attend Rock Creek and therefore I do good things. No, it doesn't work that way. I am justified by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then with my faith, with my trust, empowered by the Holy Spirit, day in and day out, minute by minute, then I do good works. That's how it works. And that means the good works that we perform are not done apart from anything that God does. It's right next to him. If the Holy Spirit has been richly, the scriptures describe, it's been richly poured out on us, then we have been able to do incredible things. Now this begs the old question, faith versus works. Isn't there a problem here? And, and I want to say abundantly clearly, no, there's no problem here. Rightly understood in James chapter 2, you, you can jot that down, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, that is not in conflict with Paul at all. Works, what we read in James, works found in each section of the passage is there for a very intentional reason. That passage says this, remind them to be ready for every good work. Just remind them to be ready for that. What does that mean? That means don't be so caught up in your schedule when you're out running errands or you're going to a restaurant or you're filling up in gas. Don't be so caught up in your schedule that you are not ready for the Holy Spirit to interrupt your life. So that you're not ready when you pull up and, and you're, you're standing in a checkout line and you see that there's someone in front of you that is noticeably struggling and the Spirit of God says, pray for that person. Reach out, talk to that person, check in on them. But if you are so busy and not ready for every good work, you will miss it. And that's when people begin to describe Christianity as, quote, boring. I have never in my life understood Christianity is boring. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ fully as an adult, I started an adventure, a movie-like adventure, where I could give you hours and days worth of stories of God putting me in situations. Why? Because Brian's great? Uh, pff, ask Sandy. 
who's not great in of herself. She forgot to wear shoes today. So good thing we don't have like no shirt, no shoes, no service. Thank God for moms, but sometimes they run out of the house. I don't know how you walk out without shoes on, but here we are. Sandy will tell you there's nothing special about me. There's something remarkable about God. Not about me. Uh, James tells us God saved us not from works of our own. Believers are to be carefully devoted to good works. This is all in line with what Paul is saying in Titus. So what's the connection? How do we summarize this entire passage? Good works do not declare us righteous. But those declared righteous must do good works. Are you with me? Does that make sense even a little bit? Maybe you need to wrestle with it a little bit later. This is foundational because many people want the root of justification without the fruit of sanctification. Does that make sense? We want to be justified, but we don't want the fruit of sanctification because that's going to come with work. He's great. Don't worry about it. He's great. In other words, I want the get-out-of-jail-free card. I want the, when I take my last breath, I have the assurance I'm going to heaven. We want that, but we don't want to put in the work. And what I'm saying to you is there's this beautiful dance. Theologians will describe this as a beautiful dance between works and faith. You can't just say, I believe, and not do anything. Why? Because your belief is in doing something. If I say, I believe that chair will hold me, but if I never sit in that chair, where is my belief? God says, you can find life by losing it. Do you believe him? God says you can find whole life in looking out for the interests of others, not for yourself. Do you believe him? God says the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Do you believe him? It comes down to these questions and Paul is saying this is not who we are. We're, we're not these people who are rescued by the king and keep living however we want. That's not how it works. We are a people found and rescued by the king of kings and, and lord of lords and his beautiful, going back to Narnia, his beautiful song of justification and grace. That's how we're saved. And that justification then brings salvation. And salvation is a beautiful thing. Biblical scholar John Stott gives six ingredients of salvation. We got a, like a whole rowing party going on up here. <laughs> Who's in charge over there? We love our kids. Kids are never a bother, amen? They might be a pain, but they're not a bother, especially at church. Biblical scholar John Stott gives six essential ingredients of salvation, and here's what he said. It's need, the need of salvation is our sin, guilt and slavery. 
its source, source of salvation is God's gracious and loving kindness. It's ground. It's not our merit, but God's mercy on the cross. Its means is the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit signified in baptism. Its goal is our final inheritance of eternal life. Amen? Its evidence is our diligent practice of good works. It is the work of a triune God with past, present, and future aspects all rolled up because he loves you. He loves you. Can you believe that? God loves you. Now, maybe you've made the mistake of going, well, of course he does. Look at Look who he's loving. But there's a lot of us in this room. You are keenly aware that you don't deserve it. But hope, hope for every single one of you in Jesus Christ. Hope for our kids in Jesus Christ. Hope for our world in Jesus Christ. Hope for your marriage, hope for your job, hope for your finances, hope for your illnesses, hope for today, hope for tomorrow, hope for all of eternity, hope because of what he has done for us. Friends, I encourage you, live in light of this truth this week. May it affect every day of your week. As the scriptures say, when you're lying down, sleeping, and when you stand and you're awake, when you're sitting down, in all things, live in light of these truths. Dwell on the doctrine and tell someone who needs to hear this hope. Tell someone. Bring them to church. Have them log in online. Take them to a great devotional. Refer them to another church. Whatever you need to do, but allow them to hear this life-changing truth and then rest. It's been a long year. Rest. Rest in his loving arms. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he is alive and he is active. And he is seeking you today. Let's stand together and let's worship in light of this incredible truth. So Lord, we love you. We are so grateful for all that you've done for us. We are so grateful for the truth of the scriptures. We are so grateful for a church that is bold and courageous for the name of Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that you uh, protected this church through COVID. We are so thankful for the community that's being built we are so thankful for the power and for the love and the encouragement that grows by means of your Holy Spirit. Help us to be infectious with that, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love you, God, with everything within our being. And as long as you choose to give us breath, we will seek to praise you at every moment until that day. <laughs> 